We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello and welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Today we have an interview coming up with Ashley Collagen Blunt talking about her new novel, Dark Mode, which is very exciting. Not normally the type of books that I would pick up, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> we have been reading a lot of thrillers lately as well. It's just it's just thriller season over here at Novel Feelings. Yes, where are, where are all the romance authors? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to dive into some romance books in the second half of the year. That would be nice. But yes, <laughs> not that I haven't enjoyed this, but it is a lot of murders. <laughs> <laughs> More murder than your average reads, I That's guess. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Ashley Collagen Blunt is the author of How to Be Australian and My Name is Revenge, as well as the newly released Dark Mode. Her writing appears in the Sydney Morning Herald, Overland, Griffith Review, Sydney Review of Books and more. Ashley teaches creative writing and co-hosts James and Ashley Stay at Home, a podcast which is about writing, creativity and health. Originally from Canada, Ashley has lived and worked in South Korea, Peru and Mexico. And here's a bit about the book, Dark Mode. For years, Reagan Carson has kept her life offline. No socials, no internet presence, no photos, safe. Until the day she stumbles on a shocking murder in a Sydney laneway. The victim looks just like her. Coincidence? As more murders shake the city and she's increasingly drawn out from hiding, Reagan is forced to confront her greatest fear. She's been found. A riveting psychological thriller drawn from true events, Dark Mode delves into the terrifying reality of the dark web and the price we pay for surrendering our privacy one click at a time. Thank you to Ultimo Press for linking us together. And before we get started on our interview, our usual disclaimers. So, of course, we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should never be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. As usual, the first half of this interview is spoiler-free, but the second half does contain major spoilers major. <laughs> for Dark Mode. Uh, literally like, this is the murderer type of spoilers. So uh, if you have read the book, definitely keep listening in that second half. And as usual as well, we'll just flag that this interview has been edited a little bit for length. And for some content notes, today we are talking about topics such as misogyny, stalking, violence against women, murder, and more. Mm. Yeah, there's a few dark topics here. Um, we don't necessarily go into detail about all of them, but mm. uh, I guess it's just with this big undertone of women are treated not so well online and in, in broader society. So yeah, just keep yeah. in mind that a lot of topics like that are coming up. Anyway, let's get started with our interview with Ashley. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us here this evening. Uh, we've both recently finished Dark Mode and are still slightly terrified by it, but are looking forward to hearing more about it and getting to know you a little bit more as a writer. How are you going today? Yeah, very well, thank you. And thanks so much for reading the book and for having me here today. Our pleasure, although, like I said, it's a... Uh, Ple pleasure is one part of it. Fear is another part of it. As I was preparing for this interview, I looked back on 
some of the text exchange that Priscilla and I had uh, last week as we were planning the questions and getting things ready. And um, I said to her, quote, it's really, really digging up some of my worst fears of being a woman with any kind of online presence. And then Priscilla responded and said, exactly, I was so stressed reading it, which is probably part of what the book aimed to do. So I'll just leave that as a bit of an opener for us today. Well done, of course. (laughs) Thank you, because I absolutely, that was exactly the response I was aiming for. So I'm glad to hear that. Good. So dark mode explores how the internet caused an evolution in misogyny and how technology can be used to target and degrade women. Can you talk a bit about what led or inspired you to writing about this topic? Sure. I listened to a lot of true crime. I got sick in 2017 uh, with chronic fatigue syndrome. I spent a couple of years in bed and that was when I really started spending a lot of time listening to true crime cases. And one of the things I'm really interested in is is how crime happens over the internet and how we can keep ourselves safer. I think just from a self-interested point of view, I'm, I'm interested in what can I do to, to keep myself safer online. And I'm not someone who avoids using technology, but I am someone who's willing to uh, inconvenience myself to some degree to keep myself a bit safer. So for example, I always keep my... Uh, location tracking turned off unless I'm actually actively using it, for example, to drive to a place I haven't been before. Um, So that was partly what got me interested in this. Um, And then also I was interested in how women are being targeted online. And there's this whole ecosystem called the Manosphere, which is these different groups of men. There's incels, and MGTOW, which are men going their own way, and pickup artists and other groups. And they've all sort of got slightly different ideologies, but they all intersect in a lot of ways. And I think people hear about these groups and they assume that they're just sort of off in some dark corner of the internet. But those groups, actually, their ideology is filtering up through society into our media and into our politics. And we saw that with with Trump. Like Trump is the best example mm. of that happening and 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 seeing it and seeing the ripple effect of that, which is a, you know, I, I mentioned Trump in the book for that specific reason, because I wanted to draw that connection. So I think this is something people need to be more aware of. And I wanted to uh, get people's attention drawn to that through a compelling story. And it definitely is a compelling story. Of course, uh, set in 2017 as well, around the time that um, Trump was early into his power, was that a deliberate timing there with the rise of the Trump presidency? Yeah, there's three reasons it's set in 2017. That Mm -hmm. one was the most coincidental one. Uh, The the primary reason was that there's a there's a murder that happens like you know on the first page, this woman's body is discovered, and it's based on a historic murder that happened in 1947. So I wanted to set this 70 years after Mm -hmm. because that was sort of um, part of the killer's psychology is that he's really obsessed with this murder. So that would be a very meaningful date for him. But the other reason I chose 2017 because I could have set it in 2022, which would have been 75 years after the murder, right? Like it kind of is arbitrary. The other reason I chose 2017 is... I felt like 
a, my main character does not have a smartphone. She has a she has one of the original style cell phones where if you want to send a text message, you've got to like each key is three letters. You've got to cycle mm-hmm, through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> she's got one of those. And that was the year twenty seventeen was the year that my husband upgraded from one of those cell phones to a smartphone. Not because he really wanted a smartphone, but because all of a sudden he had social groups that were only communicating on WhatsApp. So people who used to text him or call him or email him, suddenly if you weren't on WhatsApp, like you weren't getting invited. And so I felt like 2017 was a year where there was a really big shift. Um, You know, a lot of us had been changing the way technology interface with our lives. And I feel like that was one of the last years where you could have one of those cell phones. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a smartphone now other than, you know, my great grandmother. Yeah. yeah, I think that was around the time my mum upgraded as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like all those digital mo- nomads were suddenly mm-hmm. getting forced into having at least some kind of online presence. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting time. So the other thing is, so the main character, Reagan Carson, she has this, this small garden centre, so she's a sole business owner. And in the book, the business is really struggling. And one of the things she's being sort of pushed to do is to get um, – her business online in terms of, you know, having social media. And I actually spoke to a reader of the book who owned a small cafe. And she said 2017 was the year she put her business on Instagram. And she said it made a big difference in terms of, you know, suddenly having a community interacting with her in that space. So I feel like when we when we look back and try to track the history of how did how did technology really fully infiltrate our lives? With this, it's a really crucial time around around 2017. Yeah, wow. And of course, the plot of Dark Mode is inspired by true crimes, like you've mentioned previously, the Black Dahlia murder, which happened in 1947. Uh, what draws you personally to both um, reading true crime or listening to true crime podcasts and writing psychological thrillers like this? I think this is, like, I'm really interested to discuss this with psychologists because... When I got sick, I had always been kind of interested in true crime. It was always something that, you know, I was sort of like, oh, I find that kind of fascinating. But I've never devoted a lot of time to it, except that there's an asterisk on that, which is that my great-grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide of World War I. And when I learned about that as a teenager, I was um, really interested in this sort of his, hidden history because I'd, I'd never really heard of this event and I didn't understand how something like this could happen and how I could not know about it when it when it happened to part of my family. And so I spent 10 years studying the Armenian genocide and writing about it. And genocide is connected in terms of the psychology of crime and the psychology of deviant human behavior. So I did invest a lot of time in that specific area. But then when I got sick in 2017, um, I was I was mostly bedbound for about two years, and I'm still recovering. Like I'm each year, I get more functional and closer to being fully healthy. But I'm still I still spend a lot of time in bed. Um, and so when that happened, what I found was that I one of the very very few things that sort of lifted me out of feeling really psychologically frustrated and upset about what had happened to me because my whole life had shut down. I couldn't do anything. I felt like I'd lost everything. When I listened to true crime podcasts or, or occasionally like I could watch a documentary, that was when I stopped thinking about being sick. I wasn't thinking about myself. I was fully immersed in 
what is the crime that has happened? How was it investigated? How was it potentially prosecuted? Like, how did it go through the legal system? What were the legal ramifications that came out of it? Um, I found that that was the thing that sort of took me away from being ill. And so that's why I got so, so, so obsessed with, you know, and now I can, you know, can name any true crime, big name true crime case, and I can go into vast detail and, and discussion. And I think there's, you know, there's some people have an opinion that uh, true crime isn't appropriate for entertainment, but I don't feel like I was using it. I mean, obviously there's an entertainment component there, but I don't feel like I was using it purely for entertainment. I feel like it was learning about society. Um, I feel like it was sort of like a crash course in a criminology degree almost, but I'm curious what you think about like society's interest in true crime. Yeah, um, it's a big, least, big yeah. topic. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to just yeah. throw that. I'm like, I'm going to turn no. this around and interview you two now. No, I yeah. love it. I love it. Um, look, it's not something that I've you know read about extensively, uh, like the, the psychology behind why we're fascinated by true crime. Mm-hmm. Though it it has come up a little bit because I'm doing um, my PhD at the moment and looking mm-hmm. at um, how we can use podcasts for effective storytelling around complex and stigmatizing stigmatized issues. Yeah. So. I have been reading a bit about the podcast literature, which then brings me into the true crime podcast literature and so on. So um, I've sort of touched on it a little bit, but I guess my potentially uninformed theory is that we're all just fascinated by what pushes people to extremes of humanity. Mm. So I think, you know, most of us go through the world believing that we're good people that we have a strong moral code and that we're never going to hurt somebody. And so I think for those of us that do, you know, fall into that category, which I think is the majority of us, maybe like 99% of people, um, we are never going to do anything that is going to purposefully harm someone to that degree, Mm. hopefully more than 99% now I think about it. But, yeah, I think it's just something about that psychology aspect. You know, so many of us um, are armchair psychologists when it comes to criminology. Um, Myself, I'm I'm not a forensic psychologist, so I don't know a lot about it, so I can only speak as an armchair psychologist here. But, yeah, I think it's just something about that extreme side of things. And I think fear is a big motivator as well. And so when we link something to fear and safety, we all get more personally invested in it as well. So, you know, being... Um, you know, being a woman in society is inherently dangerous in many mm. ways. Um, being a minority in society is dangerous as well. And, yeah, I think when we know that it is something that can affect us, um, we get more invested in it. Mm. And it sounds like for you one of the major benefits of linking with this type of storytelling was distraction um, and, you know, it sounds like you, you need something to lift you out of that um, that state that you were in at that time. And I'm really glad that you found something that worked for you. And there's just one more aspect of that that I think might partly explain what psychologically could have been going mm. on for me, which is that the thing about having a disease like chronic fatigue syndrome is that there's just like not a lot of research on it. Like there's certainly yeah. more than there used to be. And now with long COVID, there's more being done in the area, but it's still like, it's very much a, a condition where I was diagnosed. I was given a few protocols and I was basically just sent home. Like, okay, now you just go off and you just, just wait for it to go away. Basically. Like you're very much on your own. And I think 
in all these true crime cases I was listening to, you know, these are cases where something terrible has happened to someone. And then there's been a lot of like police involvement, a lot of investigation, maybe Mm -hmm. over years. I mean, not necessarily that the police did a good job in all cases, um, but, you know, families have then hired private investigators. Then it's gone through the legal system. It's been in the media. Now, this, you know, the podcast is talking about it, which means there's an audience listening. So effectively, like something terrible has happened to someone. And then hundreds, if not thousands of people have become involved in in addressing mm. and remediating that. So I think it's almost there's like a something, sense of community. Yeah, I think there's something there about yeah. like, oh, like when bad things happen, there is help, like. Not, yeah. Maybe not in my case, but like yeah. in other cases. And I don't want to imply that that's, mm-hmm. I know there's been lots of cases, for example, murders where, you know, they're, they're, they haven't been addressed properly as they should have been. But in the, in the podcast that I was listening to, you know, this is where, you know, sometimes in the legal system, this has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. So you've had like hundreds and hundreds of people examining these crimes and discussing them and, and trying to, I don't like to use the term justice, but trying to remediate Uh, and redress what's happened i'm actually the opposite like i have never listened to a true crime or podcast or any documentary but i love whodunits like right you know i love you know agatha christie i love procedural um, shows like castle and bones and things like that but i can't seem to make the leap into true crime there's something about it that i think like i think i'm an avoidant person more than anything i know there are you know there are dark corners of the world and people can do terrible things, but it's like, I would rather not put myself, you know, would not expose myself to those sort of details. But yeah. when it's in the world of, you know, fiction, it's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's just a, sort of, you have like a mental barrier that's just like, as long as it's fictional, it's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but I know as well, you, we've spoken about before how you, have quite an aversion to reading about violence and um Mm. and so on as well like you you tend to correct me if I'm overstating but you tend to avoid those books that have those really dark themes or media content that does get you know really gory as well yeah which again is interesting considering I watch every episode of Bones (laughs) (laughs) but there's something about like when it's you know in Bones there are no like there's no flesh Mm. so it's almost like remove that it's one step further removed from an actual human a bit more sanitized in a way yeah yeah in my brain anyway um (laughs) I think I might fall somewhere in the middle between you two in terms of tolerance like I'm not a a true crime fanatic in the sense that I've I've listened to a lot of podcasts or engaged with a lot of documentaries or anything a few yes I've dabbled but I'm not (laughs) I have I've not dived but I I definitely don't mind the occasional dark thriller or mm-hmm. <laughs> or true crime book or anything like that yeah. yeah so priscilla did you find dark more challenging to read than in terms of just some of the descriptions of what happened to the women yes so it was this sort of push and pull a little bit in that the story the plot was really compelling and i wanted to keep reading but i almost had to skip over the more gory details like yeah on that first page I was like oh okay this is the genre that we're in (laughs) (laughs) it's right there isn't it (laughs) yeah but like it's not a bad thing I just had to skim over some of the details but I found you know the the actual crime itself really compelling I think this leads well into our next question um 
as we've spoken about, the themes of the book are quite dark. It's quite suspenseful. As we've talked about, uh, women who are reading the book who might have some kind of online presence might be feeling a bit taken aback by some of the things that happen in this book. Did the research or the writing process ever become difficult for you and, and did you need to look after yourself in any way during the process? The one thing that really, really, really upset me was when I was researching um, when I was researching the manosphere, particularly reading about how these men talk about women and mm. um, and then the fact that they are, Again, I think we have this idea of these these groups as like in these dark corners of the internet, and they're just all you know weirdos and who live in their mothers' basements and whatever, and and they're, they're really separate from our lives. But they're not. They're they are strategizing ways to bring young boys into their ideologies, and they're targeting teenage boys on places like YouTube and Instagram. And when I was researching that, I found that so upsetting. And I, like I said, I spent 10 years studying genocide. There's very, very little in terms of like how horrible humans can be to each other that I haven't encountered, that I haven't read about, and that I haven't then been able to go and have a perfectly good night's sleep afterwards. When I was researching genocide, the, the only time it got really, really hard was um, I was looking at images of orphanages from children who had survived but lost their families. And I saw an image of a boy who looked, you know, he was probably about eight and he looked almost identical to how my dad looked at that age, like in photos, like this was, there would have been 30 years between them. It wasn't my dad, but it, just seeing that was just very upsetting. The only time I've gotten that upset when researching for dark mode was learning about how these groups are infiltrating our politics, infiltrating our media and, and targeting young boys. And um, one of the researchers that I relied heavily on is a woman named Laura Bates, who's um, from the UK. And she, she actually spent a lot of time researching in these spaces. So like she created accounts and so she could be in these groups and has excerpted a lot of information. And the reason she did that is that they had been targeting her and trolling her and attacking her online. So she was like, okay, I want to understand what's actually going on here. I don't think I could, like, I don't think I could do that kind of research. I think I would find that just far too upsetting. But I, so I relied on her, on her research and she goes in and talks in high schools. And she said she has seen the way teenage boys talk change so much in the past 10 years she can tell the boys who have been targeted and who are buying into what they're being effectively like coached on from these groups. It's so upsetting. I wouldn't know how to handle that because even just that was the other part of dark mode that I thought was quite upsetting as well. Like just reading the way these these men talk about women and you know knowing that that's real somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to connect the physical violence with this ideology that's being spread online. I wanted to draw a direct connection between those things because while they're, while they're different, they're so intricately connected at a, at a mindset level. Mm. And one of the things these groups do, like 
I didn't go into this research looking for connections with genocide, but one of the things these groups do that comes up in the book is that they refer to women as foids. They have all kinds of terms. One of the, one of them mm. is foids. That one was new for me. Yeah. yeah. It's short, it's short for female humanoid and it's a way of, of, of dehumanizing women. Like they're, that they're not even, they don't even think of them as, as human. And that's a tactic of genocide in every single genocide, the target group is always dehumanized. And that's, that's what enables a population to then um, attack that group or accept that that group is being uh, destroyed. That's how you get neighbors attacking neighbors and, and murdering people that they live next door to for possibly decades. So, so seeing, seeing that used by these groups online, I, I just found that so upsetting. And I think the way I, you asked about how I look after myself, I think by talking about it with other people, by just saying like, I need, I need other people to know what's going on. So it felt really empowering to write dark mode and to, and to channel that genuine fear. Because when I, when I do, when I listen to the true crime stuff, when I hear about murders, when I hear about serial killers, I don't feel afraid. Like I know those things are real. I know they happen, but also statistically they're so rare. Whereas like this stuff, like, this stuff is in our politics. Like it's, it's real. Yeah. And I think going back to that text message that Elise read in the beginning, this is, this stuff is scary for women with any kind of online presence. And I've been on the dating apps. It's like, <laughs> wow, how lucky did I get to not run into any of these people? Yeah. So the boundaries between our virtual and physical lives have become more blurred over the years. And you've alluded to how you wanted to, um, make that connection as well in the book. And it has been particularly and unfortunately true for Reagan. Can you talk about how you explore this in dark mode? Yeah, I love that question. So Reagan, at the start of the book, she had a bad experience when she was a teenager. And one of the things I put in the book is that she goes to the police and tries to get help at that time in her life. She's a, you know, she's a young woman. She goes to the police, she tries to get help. The police tell her, well, if you don't want this kind of thing to happen, you're just going to have to stay off the internet. It was really interesting because I sent that chapter to my writer's group when I was in the drafting phase. And one of the guys circled that line and he was like, you know, this isn't very realistic. You should put in something that um, sounds more realistic because the police wouldn't say that. And I was like, actually, I can list a dozen true crime places where the police have said exactly that to women, especially women, not solely women, I should say. There have been young men who have had similar issues as well and have had the same response from police. And I think policing is starting to shift now where there is more of a realization that um, these kind of threats online, A, are damaging in and of themselves, and B, often can um, lead to real world violence as well. That line, you're just gonna have to stay off the internet, is 100% taken from real life. And so Reagan is then tries. That's she really tries to do that. She's she's like, okay, well, if that's what I have to do, then I I will do that. And she's someone who becomes very reclusive. Uh, so she she like I said, only has this uh, non smartphone. She doesn't have any online presence. She has this one static web page for her for her business, and that has an email address so people can contact her. And that was like her concession to, okay, I have this business people want to email the business or like look up the address. So here's a web page. But when the book opens, her business is not doing well financially. And she's being pressured on a lot of fronts. Her friends, like her best friend is pressuring her, 
you know, like, oh, well, if you were on Facebook, you could see all the photos of my kids. Like, I, you know, like, I don't need to stand here and show you the photos. Just, like, go on Facebook. The album is there. And her bank is pressuring her to, like, use their banking app. And uh, she's being given advice. You need to be on, like, put your business on social media so you can connect with more customers because that's where the, you know, that's where the customers are. So I think even for people who try to resist, um, digital technology infiltrating their lives. It's it's very, very, very difficult. This is slightly off track, but I was thinking that when I was in high school, I had internet friends and they were, you know, separate from my real life friends. Right. That's not a thing anymore. No. You know, my real life friends are also the people I talk to online. But, you know, if I if I was a teenager these days making friends online, I would probably also meet them like that distinction doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Well, and also you could probably just, I mean, even if they lived in a different place, you could still just talk to them on Zoom. Like it sort of yeah. be like you were hanging out with them. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, it's just that there's not that separation because you also, you know, with everyone having a smartphone, you carry your friends with you, yes. whether they live nearby or not. I, I didn't make this up and I'm probably going to butcher the punchline of it, but I remember seeing something online that was like, Back in the day, um, they told us, you know, not to go with strangers in cars or strangers in vans, and now we literally have Uber to bring a stranger in a car to our house and we get in the car with them. So, yeah, it's just the what's normal has has changed, and I feel like um, some of us have forgotten the actual dangers associated with meeting people that way. Mm -hmm. That said, I had a discussion not long into my relationship with my current partner who I met online. And I said, you know, well, before we went on our first date, you know, I looked you up and, you know, I sent your photo to my sister and I told her and another friend where we were going for our first date. And, you know, he was like, oh, why did you do that? And I was like, because I'm a woman dating a stranger. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah, such yeah. A, it's such a female experience. I don't think... I don't think he ever did that. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never heard of a guy doing that, actually. And I think they'd probably be, be accused of being paranoid if yeah. they did. Like, <laughs> I think their friends would be like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. Um, I've, I've never been through online dating, so I haven't had that experience. But I will say my, my partner, if he goes to, like, meet someone to pick up something from Facebook Marketplace because he's a big, like, secondhand you know, bargain hunter. Yeah. Um, he will always be like, okay, I'm going to this address at this time, telling you this so I don't get murdered and occasionally will drag me along with him to wait in the car. Right. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's smart. Like it's, it's smart, yeah. Because yeah. there have been, I mean, I think, again, statistically the chance that anything bad is going to happen is, is quite low, but there have definitely been cases where people have been, have ended up murdered in those, in those circumstances. Hmm. <laughs> And of course, uh, in the book, you know, 10 years ago from the the point when the so- story starts, uh, Reagan did go through this traumatic experience with her stalker. And, you know, we've spoken about how that's affected her in terms of staying offline. But I'm wondering how do you feel that this experience also affected how she sees the world and her relationships more broadly? Yeah, so Reagan is a character who has a lot of trust issues. So she had she has a mother who um, treats her not very well. Um, I don't 
say this explicitly in the book, but her mother has narcissistic personality disorder. So that makes um, sense based yeah. on the reading. Yes, yeah. exactly. I figured you'd probably recognize that. Um, so her mother has that issue and she lost her father when she was young. And so she's, she struggles with her mom. And then she had a, she had a friend in high school who uh, betrayed her and treated her kind of unfairly at the same time as she started having problems with this person that she met online. And so all of those things kind of coalesced into making her feel like she can't trust people. And so she's very, very good with plants. She sort of turned her energy and attention and affection to plants and feels like they're very easy to understand. You know, you give them water and nutrients and the right amount of sunlight and they will thrive. And she, I think Reagan wishes that people were easier that, you know, if you just give them the right things, you'll get the right response from them. But she doesn't know what to do with people. She really struggles with people. And um, that's made her very, very cautious, but she's also a very optimistic person. You know, she really, she really wants to believe that life, uh, that life will get better. And that's why she has, you know, she opened this business because she was being hopeful. Um, she starts a new relationship with someone she meets because she's being hopeful. Like she, she really does keep her hope alive. It's interesting that, you know, the men in the book are kind of a source of danger and paranoia, but Reagan doesn't actually have great relationships with the women in her life, bar one. Yeah, and she doesn't have a lot of people in her life because she, you mentioned that she had a stalker. And mm. one, of the, one of the details that I took from real life is that her, she, you know, she was at, when she was in university, she was living in share houses. And she, um, the stalker kept finding her. She would move to different locations mm. and the stalker kept finding her and she didn't understand how this was happening. And at one point she learned that someone in one of the share houses she has lived in, the stalker paid that person for her new address. So just, I took that detail from a real life case and it, just mm. as an example of how she just really struggled um, with, with trust issues. And, you know, if someone's a student and they don't have a lot of money, uh, and you can't necessarily blame them for, taking some money for a piece of information that you might feel like, oh, well, this person will find it some, some way or another. So what does it matter if I'm the one who tells them? But um, yeah, she, she really struggles with, with trust. I think of, of, of most, yeah, most people around her, as you said, bar one. I would feel exactly the same way if I had been in the same situation as Reagan. Yeah. Completely understandable. When I spoke to someone who, who experienced um, stalking and she said, and I think I used this line in the book, she said, it's like, you're, it's like reality is gaslighting you. Like you don't know what you can trust um, because that experience is, is so pervasive in your life and so upsetting. Well, in that case, I think we might move on to our spoiler questions because otherwise we're going to accidentally spoil what happens <laughs> in the second half of the book. So listeners, if you haven't read Dark Mode, or you've just started, go out and finish the book and then listen to the rest of this interview because we've got some great questions coming up. This is the Novel Universe with your hostesses, Dawn and Ashley. We rate and review the newest and most buzzworthy books. We are true book club ladies that don't always agree, but we do enjoy a good book discussion. You can find the Novel Universe on Apple, Spotify, and Google where we post new episodes twice a month. I'm Dawn 
the criticizer of books. And I'm Ashley, the fantasy architect. So grab your favorite beverage and join our universe. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. If you happen to tune out by now and you ha- haven't figured out who the murderer is, get out <laughs> and then come back here. <laughs> We're very spoiling it right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit of a plot twist towards the end of the book. We find out that it's actually Owen, Min's seemingly loving husband who had committed the murders. How did you conceptualize his character? Owen, I, I'm so excited to talk about this because <laughs> I know we're going to talk about this. <laughs> Owen is based on a guy named Dennis Rader. Have either of you ever heard of him? BTK? No. Okay. No. He's, he's a guy from the US. Um, uh, he He's was a husband and father and his daughter actually wrote a book about him when she grew up when she became an adult she wrote a book about him um about how he was a really great dad he was a he was a church elder uh he was really involved in his kid's life um but he also murdered 10 people over a number of years the murders were very intimate and horrendous he, he like he would break into women's houses he would stalk them uh so he knew when they were home alone break into their house sexually assault them and murder them and he went for years and years without being caught and when he was eventually caught and he was only caught because of his ego hmm. when he was eventually caught like you know his church was shocked his family was shocked because they were like we don't understand how we can reconcile like this person we know as a as a seemingly loving husband with the man who has committed these horrendous crimes and he's not exactly an outlier there's there's a number of cases and i actually have you know min in the book is sort of she represents me she's like the true crime fanatic she knows about all the cases and she goes through and she lists a number of 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 men who have it was a similar thing where they were they were husbands and fathers and were able to sort of split their split their personalities so that um they it it was believed that they genuinely loved their children genuinely loved their families um there was one guy whose name is escaping me but he's named in the end of the book he he was a boy scout leader and he frequently um, babysat his grandchildren, and his and he had murdered uh, seven or eight women, put their bodies in barrels, like really, really, again, really horrendous. And his his children actually refused to believe the evidence against him. They were just like, he is the most wonderful grandfather. Like, th- like this, just evidence just can't cannot be true, even though it was quite irrefutable. So. I, I find that really fascinating and I find it fascinating to think about what it would be like for the people, you know, the families of those men to then have to go back through all of their memories. And there's another case um, 
Keith Jesperson, the happy face killer. Um, he was a truck driver in the US, like a long distance truck driver. His daughter did a podcast called The Happy Face Killer about how through her childhood, he committed a series of murders over about 10 years. He killed seven or eight women. And she was a kid through that time. And she grew up and really, and he's in, he's in prison now. She still has a relationship with him. But she said she had to do a lot of work in terms of thinking about like, what is were her responsibilities to the mm. to the victims' families, and in the podcast series, she actually sits down with the son of one of the women who her father murdered, and they have a discussion about how her father's actions impacted both of their lives. It's like one of the most, I think, impactful podcasts I've ever listened to. Oh, wow, sounds like something to look up after this. <laughs> I'm, true I'm crime. I definitely, yeah. and this is what this is what wow. I mean by like I don't I don't see true crime as like entertaining because it's salacious. Like I really mm. think it's a really fascinating look into the human psyche from like all of these different angles. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I I hadn't heard of that particular case or podcast before, so I yeah I'm really keen to look that up now, mm. even though I'm not a big true crime person because that sounds fascinating. Uh, but when you were speaking, I was just I was thinking about how the media loves to, you know, loves to, they, they tend to, whether or not they intentionally do, but frame um, men who murder as, you know, as it being unexpected. Um, they love a big, long, deep dive into what caused this man to do this. And we spoke to the family and we could not possibly believe why this happens. And um, a lot of, that gets a lot of pushback whenever that happens because people go, why are you talking about why this murderer was a good man and so on? But on the flip side of that, as as a, an observer or a reader, that is fascinating because you, you never know who has the capacity to do something like that. And it just makes me think, you know, you can't assume that everyone you know is innocent in this mm. world. Okay, this is another thing that I found really fascinating on that exact comment, which is the there's a book called The Mother's Reckoning. And once again, sorry, my memory for names is not good. But the, the woman who wrote it, she is the mother of one of the two boys who committed the Columbine shooting. So these two ten- teenagers mm-hmm. who went into their high school and, and shot and killed 13 other students. So she was the mother of, of one of the boys. And she wrote this book years after this happened. And she'd done a lot of work, including with psychologists, to understand to trying to understand why her son did this because she, her, her and her husband were accused of obviously in the media being terrible parents and, and her lawyer at the time, because of course this is the U S so everyone sued these families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her lawyer at the time said, don't say anything, don't make any public statements because it's going to impact you negatively in the lawsuits. So they never defended themselves. But when she wrote this book, she said, look like what I would have said at the time when we were being accused of being horrible parents is that we were very involved in our son's life. Like we had family movie nights. Like we, you know, we helped him with his homework. Like we thought we knew our son. And basically what she concludes in that book, she's like, no one wants to hear this, but if someone wants to hide something from you, if they're committed to hiding something from you, then they will. And they can, even if you gave birth to that person and have lived with them their entire life. And I just thought that was one of the most fascinating and and frightening things I've ever heard. 
Yeah. I don't have any comments because that, that needs to just like sink in for a moment. Who do I know murderer has that capability? I Once again, I don't go through my life being afraid that like, yeah. I, you know, yeah. that my husband is secretly a murderer. Like I don't, I don't think that, but I, I, I think that there are people who have really lived these circumstances and I like it's, it's those extremes of, of, of human experience that mm. I think are, are so fascinating. Mm. And of course, with Owen as well, we do see um, the dark web conversations that happen between him and Bryce, another character who we haven't mentioned explicitly, but uh, referred to earlier on with his own horrific things that he does in the book. But we see how Owen had, it seems like very, been very purposeful in his life choices to set him up as being someone who could not be caught, um, who for all intents and purposes seemed like the loving husband, the doting father and so on. And he talks about, you know, having married very well and, and so on. And yeah, I think it's interesting as well, that idea of the ego. Yeah. He was trying to set himself up as someone who wouldn't be caught, but you can still see his own ego that is coming into his decision-making there. Yes. And at the end of the book, I've never gotten to talk about this before. This is so exciting. At the <laughs> end of the book, basically what happens is Owen has set himself this, this kind of rule, which is that like, he decided that he was going to to um, replicate these these murders because Reagan sort of walked into his life as his as his wife's best friend sort of walked into his life and he was just struck by how much she looked like the original Black Dahlia murder victim Elizabeth Short. But he was like, I can't I can't murder her because then I'll get caught. Like it's too close to me. Like I have to murder people I have no connection to, and that's how he thinks he's going to get away with this. But the other thing that's really inspired this is, and I hope it comes through in those exchanges between Bryce and Owen, is that he really idolizes Bryce, but also wants to prove that he's smarter than him. Hmm. And so early in their relationship, that's sort of the, there's this tension there of like, I'm really, he's really impressed by what Bryce is doing, but he wants to take a greater risk than Bryce is because Bryce, Bryce's policy is. I don't commit any physical violence. Like I destroy people psychologically because I think that's more fun and more interesting, but I, I don't commit physical violence myself. And Bryce makes the point that, and I think it's true that if you commit physical violence against women, you're far more likely, not necessarily, but far more likely to be a subject of police investigation and, and potential legal ramifications than if you, for example, just harass them online. Like there's far less attention being paid and far less of a, of a big deal made in society about those kinds of crimes against women. And that I wanted to show that disparity, but then, but then, so when, when Reagan is responsible for Bryce being arrested, that's when Owen sort of hmm. loses it and, and it decides to attack her because he feels like she's taken away something that's very meaningful to him. And, and now like him killing her has become very, very personal. Whereas the other women he killed were strangers to him. It was not personal at all. It was about his art, his, his, his art project with Reagan. It's that's when he sort of loses it, which is what happens to a lot of killers. More of a revenge element coming exactly. into it. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was like, quite like, <laughs> no, I was just thinking about like the pig, like the pigs. Yeah. Like, in that oh. scene where, where Reagan's in the house and there's a fridge and then I've 
remember that Min was talking about, oh, we're going to have ham again or bacon again. And I was like, oh, you know, Min is going to need a lot of therapy. <laughs> oh, God, poor Min. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. But uh, I also, I suppose, you know, on a more substantial comment, um, in that I, I was struck by how repeatedly, I can't remember how often, but there were points in the book where Regan was like, asked what she would have done better or what she would have done differently and she was like I could have done you know everything differently and they would have still found me um I think there was something else you know Owen just there was no logical reason to why he targeted her apart from that he had this fascination with the Black Dahlia murder like whatever no matter what she did he would have found a way to get to her yes Yes. And I wanted, I wanted to make that point because I don't want anyone to think that with this book, I'm implying that any of us as an individual should or would be safer if we weren't online. I don't think, I think at this point in society, so much of our information is stored online. We, like, we don't have control over that. Like the government is storing our information online. The doctor is storing our information online. Like, our information is at risk because it's online, whether or not we individually are posting our birthday on Instagram. Like, I think we can make smarter choices. I think we can all update our passwords probably more often than we do. The number of people I have talked to have who have told me they have one password. Like, like, do you understand how the dark web works? Like, you need to change that password, like, now. Um, but so we can we can make smarter choices. But I don't want anyone to think that I'm that what I'm saying with this mm. book is like, oh, you should get offline like Reagan did. Like that's that's not the answer. We've talked a little bit about the role of the dark web and the manosphere and everything, um, but w- were there any other particular inspirations for Bryce's character in the story? Well, Bryce is, I think you've identified him as a, as a true psychopath. Um, he's obviously a sadist as well. Um, I think he has that sort of dark triad of personality, mm-hmm. narcissistic, um, Machiavellian. Um, so he's, he's more of the classic sort of Hannibal Lecter type character. But I wanted to put a twist on that, which is that he's actually, and he specifically states in the book, like, I don't kill women because I don't want that kind of attention from the cops. Um, he's like, I think it's more interesting to damage them psychologically anyways, because like his opinion is like, then you get to see them go on to suffer for y- years afterwards. Whereas if you kill them, like it's kind of like, Oh, well then, you know, that's done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's his very twisted view of the world. He's partly based on a really, really interesting case. There was a guy in the, late 1800s in Chicago named H.H. Holmes. And he he was a serial killer, but what he did was he would marry young women and he married a series of women and each of these women had some money. And of course he would marry them and then their families would suddenly stop hearing from them and then they would never be seen again. And... But what was interesting about him was that he was described as like a lot of people described him as not really that attractive. And yet he kept convincing these women to marry him. And so I found that really, really fascinating because it's from the 1800s. There's not a lot of records about him. And I just I, I, I partly I was like, what would that be like today? Like, what would that look like? And I was like, oh, it would look like someone who's serially dating women 
And so that's where the inspiration for Bryce came from was this was this guy named H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes, separate to dark mode, but also very, very interesting for anyone who's interested in true crime, mm. um, built built a, a murder hotel. He built this crazy building in Chicago, coincided with the with the World's Fair in Chicago in the 1890s, which brought in um, hundreds of thousands of visitors to Chicago through that year. And some of them stayed in this murder hotel uh, that had a crematorium in the basement. Like just one of the most bizarre true crime cases you'll ever encounter. I just, I've read everything about it that's out there. It's, it's so fascinating. There's a book called The Devil in the White City. If you're interested in H.H. H. Holmes, uh, read that book by Eric Larson. It's amazing. My aside on this is that when you said he's not that attractive and what would that look like right now? I, like a voice in my head goes Pete Davidson. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> not a psychopath. Yeah, not a psychopath, but like there's this, because I listen to uh, pop culture podcasts and they talk, you know, there's this discourse around like, how is a guy like Pete Davidson keep dating really hot women? Mm. And like, well, you know, he might not be that attractive physically perhaps compared to like, you know, stereotypical attractive men, but he's probably really funny and probably quite charming. And I imagine serial killers who can, uh, you know, woo women in that way are probably quite charming in their own way. It also makes me think of pickup artists and the techniques that some of those serial daters use as well. Well, and Bryce has an element of that, right? Because he's sort of like teaching, he sort of gives tips to the people in his group about how, like, if you want to make a woman fall in love with you. So I gave him some of those pickup artist elements. But yeah, I, I, I felt that Bryce had to be someone who was really, really charming and also was very, very conscious. He would, he would be very conscious of like the way he researches women so he can um, ask them about things that they're interested in. And then like he really considers what he does a, a performance. And he, so when he's with the woman he's dating, because I think Reagan, Reagan is number nine, uh, the ninth woman who has done this to you. Uh, that he's that he's recorded in in the dark website um, that they discover. Mm. Um, he talks about how he he's playing a role when he's when he's with that woman, and I, and that again connects back to this idea that like you can never know what's going on in in someone's head. Like they can seem like the perfect person, but is that just because they're putting on a front? Like, and I, not that I think people in my life are doing that, but. That, yep. that it's that that is possible, right? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Just picturing like looking at my fiance over the top of dark mode, like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if anything, just be mindful of if you rear end someone in traffic. It's probably a setup. They've been researching you for weeks. Yes. Drive off, don't leave your insurance details. <laughs> Terrible idea. <laughs> oh, good advice. Um, so we we did want to talk about um Min and Reagan as well. Um, Min being one of the few stable and for the most part, I think, healthy relationships that we do see in this book. I guess Reagan's friendship with Min was a source of frustration at times, especially when Min was pushing her um, around aspects of the, the criminal investigations happening in this book. But it is mostly a source of comfort. But there was a brief moment in the story where we as the readers and Reagan, of course, thought that Min might have been in cahoots with Owen in some way and the terror was real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm just wondering if there was ever a time where you 
did consider Min to be a co-conspirator in the crime or to be involved um, as a perpetrator in any way. Yes. Well, so my writer's group, there was a guy in my writer's group who really, really wanted Min to be a co-conspirator of Owen. So when that Uh moment comes in the climax where Min arrives and Reagan, her her initial thought is, oh my God, she's involved. Um, one One of the guys in my writer's group was like, oh, well, you have to do that because like that would be so shocking. But the whole point of the book at its core is about trust, right? Like it's about both trust with people and it's about trust in our, in our digital systems as well. You know, like what kind of trust do we put in what we put on the internet? So if men had been a co-conspirator, that literally then the message of the book would be, there's literally no one you can trust. Like everyone is potentially out to destroy you. I had to have men be someone that, um, she is the person that Reagan thinks she is, but I wanted that to be complex and and difficult. So they have this relationship where they both met teaching overseas in South Korea, and they were in a place where in that context, like they worked together, they were neighbors, they were the only two fluent English speakers in the tiny village that they lived in. So they were, they were incredibly close, and they relied 100% on each other. But then when they moved back to Sydney... Well, now, you know, Min's got her kids and she's got her husband and she's got her true crime career. So it's sort of like for people who knew me when I lived in South Korea, like I probably barely spoke about true crime. But now, like because I've sort of immersed myself in that and it's now part of my career, I talk about it all the time. And my husband has, much like Reagan, banned me from speaking about it in his presence. (laughs) So I I. I wanted to have like some Min and Reagan are still very, very close, but their friendship is complicated by these, the the new context that they find themselves in. Um, And I find it a bit frustrating in, 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 you know, fiction movies where there's two best friends and they're just like perfect together. You know, those perfect friendships that at least in my life, they don't seem to exist in the real world. Like I find all my friendships sort of have, layers of complication and I wanted to reflect that in Min and Reagan's friendship as well. I was glad that she was not a co-conspirator because I think that would have been terrible in yeah. terms of like everything is a lie you can't trust anyone. Yeah. It would have really changed the end yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and I think in this way Min is also a really interesting character because she loves true crime but inadvertently a lot her life has become one and now she has to cope with you know raising her children and trying as you mentioned before having to go back through all her memories and work out what what was real and what wasn't mm-hmm. and that's that's what I was hoping readers would be left thinking about is how is Min going to cope with this going forward like I I personally don't think she'll have a career in true crime because I think that would be just too hard for her any chance of a sequel being in the works? <laughs> so many people have asked me for a sequel. The next, I'm working, I'm working on a new book that is connected to dark mode. It's not a, it's not a sequel. Different characters, different setting, but same, exploring different angles of the same themes. There's another dark web angle in it, but um, so many people have asked me for a sequel. I think I need to, I think I need to go to my publisher and say like, maybe we should do a sequel. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll see. It might happen. I mean, yeah. that last uh, page or so is. You know, that's a can of worms that gets opened yeah. up with uh, the potential 3,000 plus people wanting to target um, Paul Reagan. So, 
I'm curious about what happens next. Okay, if you don't write one, I'm not going to force you to, but I would read it if you did. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Well, there's certainly been a lot of requests. Well, and our final question for tonight, uh, do you have any authors or books that you would like to recommend to our listeners? You've recommended a few already, Mm. um, but are there any more that that come to mind? Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I would definitely recommend if you're interested in true crime, The Devil in the White City is such a fascinating book and so well written. Um, In terms of Australian fiction, there's a book called Maduka the River Serpent by Julie Jansen, which is uh, she's a First Nations author. And the book is about uh, the main character uh, her name's Auntie June, and she has her Cert Three in investigative services, and so she sort of set herself up as a as a private investigator, and um, it's just a it's a really really wonderful book, and that came out last year, and she'll be speaking at Brisbane Writers Festival uh, alongside me as well, and I would also just the three authors that inspired Dark Mode. So if you're a fan of these. Um, if you're a fan of dark mode, I think you would really love these authors. Candace Fox, who's an Australian crime thriller author. Her latest book is Fire with Fire. I just started it. It's amazing. J.P. Pomeray, um, particularly his first two books, Call Me Evie and In the Clearing, which are excellent. And In the Clearing is being made into a Disney Plus series that's coming out this year. Oh, yeah. It's, it's based on the cult, the family, the Australian cult, the family. Uh, so it's really excellent. And then... Irish novelist Tana French, her her psychological crime uh, police procedurals are just fantastic. She has a book called The Witch Elm, which I just think is just one of the best books I've ever read. So those would be my recommendations. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, this has been such a wonderful interview. I feel like we've covered a lot and done that thing we always get to do with authors in our spoiler section where we ask all the questions that we were wondering about as readers, not just as uh, book reviewers and podcasters. So thank you so much for um, sharing your insights with us and for answering all of our little nerdy fan base questions as well. Oh, I love it. Thank you for doing Dark Mode. Thank you, especially Priscilla, for, for um, you know, veering into the, the darker side of fiction. And I think the concept of your podcast is fantastic. So I really love that you're that you're doing this. So thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Sure. Now we will quickly mention what is going up on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode. Some of the resources we will link to include Ashley's website, including a book club pack about dark mode, Ashley's podcast, James and Ashley's Stay at Home. We will also include the book recommendations that Ashley has mentioned in the interview. So that wraps us up for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like us, please remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on novelfeelings.com or on Instagram, Twitter, The Storygraph, and Goodreads via novel underscore feelings. You can also find me on Bookstagram at pavedwithbooks with an extra S. So that is update. I hope it is alive by the time this episode goes up. I am sure it will be. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thank you once again to Ashley for joining us for this interview. Take care, everyone. See ya.